why are we looking at Smith to understand how markets work when I would actually contend Smith doesn't really make a lot of sense when Colbert jokingly seems to me to give the clearest vision of how to create a functioning market system. It's not perfect. It's from the 17th century. He's a repressive <laughs> absolutist. Um, but I was stunned at his, by the way, he also believes in publicity and creating confidence and creating a knowledge store for industry and business. And he succeeds. of New Work in Intellectual History, an intermission podcast produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm your host of this episode, Robin Mills. You can find the Institute at intellectualhistory.net, uh, on Twitter at the handle at St. Andrews IIH. Right, I'm delighted to be talking today with Professor Jacob Soule. Hello, Jake. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Robin. Good to see you. <laughs> um, now, Jake is Professor of History and Accounting at the University of Southern California and the author of many fantastic works including Publishing the Prince, 2005, The Information Master, 2009, about Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who we'll talk about today, and The Reckoning, Financial Accountability and the Rise and Fall of Nations, 2014. But today we're going to talk about his latest book, uh, entitled Free Market, The History of an Idea, published with Basic Books, uh, October 2022, I think it was, uh, a work that has provoked a lot of commentary. It's really fascinating. It's very ambitious. Uh, I wonder, Jake, whether I could give you the responsibility of giving us a general overview of what the book's about. Well, the the book is basically, well, let me put it this way. In the field of political history, and I was trained in this, you know, at Cambridge, we do genealogies of ideas. So you have reason of state, you have dissimulation, you have the state, you have secrecy. We've, we've, let's just say we've picked a lot of weeds and cleaned up the gardens of those ideas and clarified them a lot. In economic history, I was startled to find and constantly frustrated to find that there was really no long genealogy of free market thought. That seems kind of incredible, right? That seems really problematic to begin with. That also stemmed from a constant frustration with historians using the word mercantilism, which just did not exist. Um, and even when Smith used it, he said the mercantile system, which is really different than mercantilism. So as a Colbert scholar, I was constantly faced with having to explain a term that didn't exist. I was also constantly forced to explain that it didn't exist. And that's just not, a, and I was like, this is a primitive field. I mean, this just wouldn't have happened in political history, the history of ideas, um, the history of science, for example, that, that work has been done. So I thought this was a kind of really great opportunity to finally do this. It was an enormous challenge because I had to go back. I just went backwards, essentially, from Smith looking at, you know, the general idea of general equilibrium, a market that works on its own, the words free market, laissez-faire generally. Um, and then, you know, I found some strains. I found people like Colbert saying liberty of commerce. 
I found the early kind of mercantilists. People never know what to do with them because it, the field's so anachronistic. Misseldon and Munn using the words free market, but not the way we would. And then I found Cicero everywhere. So I took eight years to do this project. I worked so hard on it. So it's a big project. I know it. there are flaws in it, but um, the attempt was to finally show us an intellectual and political history of this massive idea, or at least to get the ball rolling since no one's even begun to really do that yet. Absolutely. That begs the question, um, why was the field like that? Why is the history of economic thought, I mean, I can guess the answer quite straight, you know, straightforwardly, but why has the history of economic thought been uh, somewhat held back? What, what what has been holding it back? Well, I mean, you know, these are, there's going to be my, this is my take on it. First of all, and I know this from my own experience coming out of intellectual history and also being trained in Europe. Um, there's a lot of snobbery against doing economic history, which is seen as sort of low and grubby as opposed to the high ideas of the state, right? Um, I sensed this at Cambridge, and I think that Istvan Hunt sensed it too, that there was a kind of lower place for those of us doing economic history rather than the high ideas, politics, right? And then science. Um, and, and that's just not true. They're all interconnected. I also think that the stakes paradoxically are much higher in economic history, um, and the myths are much stronger. And, and as someone said to me about the critiques of my book, don't get between a person and their lunch. I mean, lots of people are making a lot of money off of this. In America, we have what I'm calling in a new article, the economic history industrial complex, where historians and journalists and commentators and economists make a fortune off of this with their substacks, legacy media, Twitter, um, books, all sorts of stuff. I myself have profited from this. The Reckoning gave me a kind of minor view. I've sat on the boards of financial companies. I've advised governments. You don't get to do that to the same extent with other kinds of history. So the actual material stakes are really big and people are really attached to this mythology. So for example, a lot of the websites attacking um, my readings, well, a lot of them are funded by people like the Koch brothers. Um, you know, or they're, they get a lot of corporate funding. People want these myths to stand up. Um, frankly, I'm not sure why, since not that many people believe in, in what we call, could call, I call it orthodox, modern free market thought. People call it neoliberalism. Not that many people believe in it anymore. Um, I would think they do better to break up their myths, but I guess I was mistaken. I didn't expect this reaction in the United States. That That is not the same in Britain. People don't make a fortune doing this in Britain. I just think that those myths aren't as strong and people think about economics, I would say, in a bit more of a sophisticated way in the realm of, in the world of, for example, journalism. If you do a, um, a Google n-gram of the word free market, uh, it becomes, um, you know, its prominence is, um, it's hit and miss up until about like the 1930s, and it begins to increase, and then dramatically increases in the late 1940s, 50s, and then precipitously declines after the 1990s. That suggests to me that it's a, a Cold War concept. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I want, well, that's the, it's not necessarily the, the, the villain of the story of your book, because there are reasons for praising him, but Milton Friedman plays a key role in 
um, the emergence of, I mean, you occasionally describe it as sort of like a, a tenet of religious faith, believing that free markets can function independently and completely efficaciously and don't need any government intervention and so on. Can you um, um, develop that a little bit? Um, yeah. What is sort of free market absolutism? Right, well, Smith is, Smith and Hayek, I think, well, let me talk about uh, Smith, sorry. Friedman and Hayek are kind of free market absolutists. Um, Friedman, by the way, I've had people attack my book for being too friendly to Friedman. <laughs> sorry, I mean, everyone, I write at the beginning of the book, free market thought is a Rorschach test. Everyone who sees it has a kind of strong reaction mm. to it. Those reactions are different. So it's hilarious for me to get these things like, why were you so kind to those guys? And then to have these giant attacks on, you know, on my readings of, of him. I do not think he's a very nuanced thinker in any way, um, Friedman. I've read his work. I found it painful and dull. I'll be honest with that. Um, I do sort of like him as a character, although then he starts working with institutions that are more and more creepy in the United States, working with institutions connected to the far right and with with uh, um, segregation. I mean, he even though he was against it, he definitely ended up working with those people, the moral majority, you know, the, 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 he knew he was working with them. So anyway, I think that he's a sort of troubling character in a lot of ways. One of my favorite stories is Friedman goes to China and the Chinese communists <laughs> were fascinated with efficiency. And I write about this in the book. So they were really interested in models of efficiency, but Friedman goes in and says, look, without political liberty, you cannot get rich. And they just sit and they listen to him. And he comes back again and he says the same thing and he's wrong. They have the greatest moment of wealth creation in human history without political freedom and actually without full economic freedom either. The role of the state, even if they had entrepreneurialism working, the role of the state is enormous in the Chinese economy. Um, and they got really, really rich. And what I think is really interesting is a lot of the American sort of far-right reaction or the move further to the right, the xenophobia um, and the reaction against free markets has been the sort of surprise that China could have done this. One reaction might be racist, like how can these you know non-Europeans get richer than us? But how is it? We were told that you could only get rich with democracy. And it turns out it's not true. I believe that that line of reasoning was, was dangerous and misleading. You can get rich without democracy. Now, I'm not convinced that you can produce wealth for a long time with a closed autocratic system. So I don't think it produces long-term wealth, but you can certainly get 40 good years out of it as the Chinese have shown. Um, so yes, this was in reaction to that. And I do want to just touch on Hayek. There's an Matthew Iglesias, an American journalist wrote that whenever um, left-wing people, and I mean, am I on the left? Yeah, I guess so, but I'm, so old now that my version of the left is kind of <laughs> i might be seen as like a conservative left i mean you know i but he said whenever someone a progressive person attacks hayek they forget the the, the, the hayek people in the right come back and said oh hayek believed in fraud prevention and and in um social welfare but that's just ridiculous because if that's fine sure he says that um, but if you read Hayek, and he's very clear that if this state is involved with any economic central planning, it will lead to, he actually says, a degradation of individual freedom and will eventually lead to authoritarian or totalitarian government. Um, 
circulators. That's, that's, that's an extreme statement. It's a paranoid yeah. extreme statement. I go back to this idea that um, the point there about uh, sort of the popularity of free market ideas declining in response to the success of the Chinese economy. Yeah. It's also, you say, because the Cold War ended and free markets acted as a, this is what we're for. Uh, we're the opposite to you know, centralized state uh, planning. Um, yeah. And then you take away that other and then free markets, you, that, there's no need for it in the same way. Is there, am I reading too much into sort of the- No, no, I think I think that's partially true. I mean, again, I'm for free markets generally, not, but just not the idea that they exist without state, hard state and civil work that democratic elected governments and their policies are part of free markets. They're essential to it. I think that the Cold War and its end uh, were- you know, took away some of the reasoning of free markets and the myth, the need for the myths of free markets, but so has wealth inequality. Um, you know, as Brad DeLong has noted, you know, we've kind of slouched towards utopia. Now the market created all this incredible wealth. The Chinese totally knew that. But in our countries, for example, it has created wealth for very small groups of people. The average person has been getting poor since 1991, poorer and poorer and poorer. That is just not. I've seen economic arguments against that on the right. It's it's just not, not true. That, that's, that's not. Is that absolutely or relative to the increases in? Uh, no, that's absolutely. Just their wages have been going down. What is it, thirty-seven percent or something since nineteen? I don't. I please don't say I've misquoted anything, but I have seen credible statistics that show that wages have gone down by the way i if i had got, had the same professorial salary i had in my last job i would have lost my house it, it just wasn't ever going to go up there was no way that that wage could have kept pace and by the way i see it in in, in the profess the world of academia i'm not talking about people without tenured jobs i'm talking about tenured people for example and or people with full positions in britain and italy and france they have become poorer and poorer and poorer since I was a student in the mm. 80s and 90s when professors were upper middle class. Mm. It's not the case anymore. There's so much, there's so many directions we could go. Um, I suppose one of them, just in terms of, uh, I have to admit, when I first read this book, I had this response where, excuse me, um, I did economics A-level. I don't know what the equivalent is um, to uh, an American student, but... Um, you talk about free markets as if they can be combined with government regulation, government intervention. And instinctively, I, I went, well, that's the free market is the absolute absence of any government. That is the definition of a free market. So that, that's the sort of absolutist position that sort of came in in the middle of the 20th century. And one of the, by the well, I think this is in your conclusion, the main one of the major conclusions you will sort of put forward is that we should be very suspicious of any argument like that, that free markets exist, um, that they're purely efficacious, they exist separate to any government intervention, and that that is a, a plausible plausible account. So yeah, can, um, explain to me why I am uh, wrong in thinking that free markets cannot have governments uh, interfere, you know, involved in them. Well, first of all, I don't know any examples that they do. And the easy example is, you know, Reagan <laughs> in, he's deregulating, he's cutting taxes and he's jacking up military spending and juicing the economy. By the way, of course, it doesn't totally work. 
the deregulation, definitely some of it works, other ends in, you know, I would say disaster and inequality, but there's no question that America is super unjust and relatively dynamic. I mean, it's like a very, people are like, why don't you leave? I'm like, well, I have a good position in America and it's super dynamic here, but it's mm. not dynamic if you're on the bottom. So I don't see, I also believe that markets have to be built. And that's something that lots of market thinkers like Jean-Baptiste Colbert believed. Those who believe that markets will just work on their own if you find a magic recipe are usually people, at least historically, who believe in the cult of nature mm. and believe that if we can just find the right sort of social approach to uh, to agriculture, to freeing up agriculture, getting government to favor or to get out of the not tax agriculture, then nature will just produce wealth in a very good way. Not in a limitless, for some people it's limitless, for Smith it's not limitless. But this idea, and this gets back to sort of one of the big theses of the book, goes back to Cicero. If you study people who believe in this, you will get a lot of references to Cicero because Cicero has the sort of ultimate or exchange theory uh, in his works, in particular Deificis, but also in some other works where he says that, you know, an ideal exchange is disinterested amongst people of the same social status, meaning senators, um, made for love, which means friendship in that case. And if those exchanges are made and you are also exchanging ideas freely about the laws and how nature works, nature will just take its course and produce this eternal wealth that the Roman Republic has been producing for 500 years. This is really seductive, especially in societies dominated by agrarian elites. And it's an idea. Remember, Cicero is the one thinker, one of the main classical thinkers that does not disappear in the Middle Ages. And he comes up again and again in economic thought and these ideas about nature. So I thought that was actually kind of amazing. Anyone in political history would have immediately seen the Ciceronian link in all these different thinkers. And I go through and each time Cicero's there, I mention it. By the way, he's also important to Colbert, who believes that businessmen should read some Cicero to understand good manners because decorum allows business to work better. And he actually thinks that French businessmen are too dishonest. And for a market to work, you need quality, trust, and honesty. <laughs> I mean, you know, so um, he's, you know, it's not just these people who just believe in the cult of nature. It's also a pro-industry person. Colbert believes that industry will produce more than um, than agriculture will, but he still believes in Cicero and decorum. Uh, can we get, is there any more that we could say about uh, Cicero's influence over the two millennia up until the present day? Is there any, can you pick out uh, examples, say the case of maybe more with Colbert or with Smith or at the, you know, at the end of the book, you are encouraging the reader to look back to Cicero as a, a possible source for how we go forward. Um, yeah, could you go a bit further? Yeah, I mean, so so Cicero is constantly there with this idea of a good and moral exchange. And so in a, the agrarian world, in the world that, that really lasts until the 19th century, and, and some would argue until 1870, I find the last reference to Cicero by uh, 
a free market um, thinker, although I think Mill is, you know, very interesting free market thinker is Mill in like what, 1845 or something. And then it really stops. But it's this idea that, that markets will come about from the moral decisions of, of stoic people, mostly elite people who know how to make moral training and can make the good decisions for exchange. Um, Smith says, you know, many economic um, decisions won't be moral, but ultimately you're going to need these people of exquisite compassion, exquisite virtue and morality to lead and create these good laws. Um, Smith goes back and forth between saying politicians are bad and then saying, you know, you need these really good politicians who, i.e., are the people who live off rents. He says it in, what is it, book one, chapter nine. Um, and they have the biggest interest and the biggest possibility of productivity. So throughout this whole period leading up to the 1850s, Cicero comes back again and again as this model for good exchange. What's so fascinating to me is in the Renaissance, you have um, uh, this guy, Catrulli, who writes the book of the merchant, um, which is a book that had been manuscript until recently. It's one of the best Ars Mercatoria books. Um, and I believe it's from sometime in the 1400s. He is uh, uh, a Dalmatian coast Venetian trader who ends up going to Florence and working with the Florentines. He reformulates Cicero in the, in the, in the 1400s to try and say Cicero thought that merchants were really great people. He didn't. Cicero thought that the Mercator was a very low Syrian kind of person. Um, but you literally get these quattrocento Florentine-influenced merchants trying to adopt the Ciceronian ideal of morals to show that the ideal person in the world actually is this kind of merchant who deals in this moral way to create wealth for their city. And so Cicero starts getting twisted really early on and brought on as a caution or as I don't know how to say it in English, as a you know, as a as a guarantor, a moral guarantor of the value uh, of merchants. Why did I sort of end with Cicero? I did so facetiously because at the end of the day, Cicero and Smith do both hark back to the need for morality and society to have a huge role in economic affairs. And if you read people like Hayek carefully they believe that it's just supply and demand will sort of make everything work. I have watched that not work. I've watched supply and demand destroy the environment and I have watched it create a very unequal society and I have profited from it. And I'm speaking as myself here. It's not a quote. Um, I believe in supply and demand. I believe the market's a lot better, for example, than producing wine than, than communist governments were. Communist governments produced the worst wine just about ever, <laughs> although there are plenty of actual winemakers wine <laughs> in California who produce disgusting wine that's very expensive. The market doesn't always work. Um, <laughs> that see, that would be a very good argument to have. Whether how does the market work with wine? But it's it's I think it's better. But supply and demand can't be everything, and I think Smith says that. And so, if we're going to return to Smith and Cicero, let's take away this idea of creating a benevolent society or a more benevolent and moral society. Is it possible? I don't know. But I do know that when I was a kid, there was a sense that 
social inequality was much more unacceptable, particularly by those in my family that came out of World War II. And I was quoting one of my cousins who was an industrialist who said, you have to have an equal distribution of wealth to workers or we will get the populism of Hitler again. And this cousin was German. And um, and I remember this very clearly. He was a, a Christian Democrat from the center right, basically saying that the market has to produce these high-paying jobs, but we have to make sure that the the that it's generally society's generally fair, or we will run very serious risks. I remember this being said. Wow, you know, the insight of people that lived through World War II. Note that's the moment that they start dying that we actually get populism. It's not necessarily the fall of the wall. It's the death of the World War II generation, the witnesses of what happened. Um, so yeah, I think Cicero is caught up in this in a very complex way. And I love Cicero. I love reading him. I love seeing his partial hypocrisy, but I also am amazed seeing the moment when he does become the first great martyr in the Western story for republicanism and the rule of law. And I believe that he is a parallel and an inspiration of Jesus of Nazareth as someone who is being a moral, giving their lives for a moral cause. Um, so yeah, I think it's a big deal. I mean, it's I've, I'm looking at all my books of Cicero. I spent years reading them. I must say I really enjoyed that. I mean, that was just yeah. absolutely fascinating. Um, I saw this so much. Okay, so two of the, the two... You can correct me if I'm wrong, but this, like, the two major criticisms you, or two, two of the major criticisms you make of the free market absolutism that turns up in the middle of the 20th century uh, are that it goes against the previous 2000 years. It's very ahistorical. It's, it's like a, a sudden detachment, a sudden break with what came before. And then also that it's utterly detached from morals as well. The, the moral element disappears. Economic thought was utterly bound up with, right. say, the Ciceronian moral thought. Uh, why does the second, we've talked about the, the former bit, why does the second bit happen? Why do Hayek and Friedman, um, for example, detach their thought from morals? In my head, I instinctively think, I imagine it's going to be because they saw the twin threats of communism and fascism and... Um, you want to get away as far, as far away from that as possible. They're bound up with values. Let's utterly detach the economic from the political and we'll be safe. Um, but yeah, yeah. You, you tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, we don't completely know. But yeah, I mean, I, I call this a sort of paranoid strain. They were, well, actually, Brad DeLong noted that many of the American economists um, whether Friedman lost his job um, in Wisconsin because the Wisconsin legislators didn't want to hire a, another Jew or have another Jew on the faculty. Paul Samuelson lost, and that's a public university. Paul Samuelson lost his position at Harvard because they didn't want another Jew on the faculty at the private university. So, you know, I mean, we're joking about how these guys get their economic theory from their own position. Then you have Hayek, who because I've been attacked by the Hayek people, I'm just not feeling love <laughs> towards Hayek these days. Um, Hayek is chased from Austria by Nazis, but he never complains about Nazis. He just complains about socialists, which I just keep raising my eyes at because I'm like, wait a minute, those aren't the people that chased you out, my friend. <laughs> you know, they were willing, I mean, at least the socialists were willing to be part of democratic governments, not the communists. Um, 
and certainly not the Nazis. So let's why don't we hear more about Nazis in Hayek? We don't hear anything about Nazis. Hayek, look, also has this idea, which, um, again, I'm talking about Brad DeLong a lot because we've done a whole bunch of events together. And it's really interesting because he's an economist. He works more in the 20th century. And he said, you know, that Hayek believes that freedom, just individual choice and supply and demand will create a kind of democratic morality, although he's not necessarily he's opposed to democracy. I mean, he speaks out against democracy, making bad decisions and can be interpreted to some extent as being anti-democratic politically in some ways, too. I mean, he's a, I think he's a creepy author. Um but there's this contention that Brad has that he saw the genius that the market could do all these things by collective decision making, collective, right? Um, the collective individual choices. Um, I don't think that's necessarily moral, right? I mean, collective choice right now just means dumping as much plastic as we can into the system. That doesn't seem either rational. I get the rational process behind it and it doesn't seem necessarily good. So I think he does believe in a moral system, but it's not a moral system that's very Burkean. It's not based on tradition. It's not based on institutions. It's not based on the self-discipline of moral people in society. Um, so yeah, I think that that is a dangerous move away um, from uh, you know democratic institutional this is a typical critique of neoliberalism, right? That we're just going into this kind of tyranny of the market. And I think that's one of our partial problems. At the same time, I don't want to get rid of the market completely. It produces lots of good things and competition and openness and all these other things. So I'm not advocating against the market. I'm not advocating, going to sit here and advocate against capitalism in spite of the massive failures we're seeing. I'm advocating... I'm more or less as an intellectual historian saying people did not think that general equilibrium really worked until basically Marshall. And even then, Jevons and Marshall had a lot of caveats. This absolute thinking of free markets comes at a time when states are very, very strong. You don't see people criticizing the state in the same way because they're building states really until the 19th century. Um, we're still, we got a lot of state building to do now in the United States. I mean, the state has broken down. We don't, there, people are trying to dismantle our fiscal tax system and it's really not working. That's actually historically terrifying. I'm surprised people don't see that. People don't know history in many cases. So, um, yeah, I think it comes from, you know, lots of things. I also think that in America, there was a great interest of segregationists and Christian fundamentalists to weaken and then supported by big industry to weaken the state. And I think they have been incredibly successful. And I think in the places where they've been most successful in the American South, see many of those states have economic living standards and statistics, which are second and third world. It, and so they have succeeded in creating their oligarchies and low wages and poor living standards. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we could get into those arguments. Those aren't the real intellectual history arguments, but I do <laughs> think it's. But I do, do think it's fascinating as a discourse, as an intellectual historian. One of the reasons that I talked about segregation and Christian fundamentalism is because these are the people adopting free market thought in a very strong way. And I'm like, it's a huh. somewhat ironic. Well, I, I, you know, at first blush, it feels like I, 
it's paradoxical. It feels like that those people in the room shouldn't be in the same room together. But historically, there is a lot of precedent for that. Yeah. Who are the physiocrats? They are neo neo feudalists, as Sophus Reinhardt likes to call them, and I think rightly so. And Sophus Reinhardt will then go on to say that Smith is one of these people. He too is a neo-feudalist. And the big deal that even Sophus has said, look, he he's kind of an anti-physiocrat, but at the end of the day, he's really not. At the end, he's advocating an agrarian society with commerce and manufacturers, not necessarily industry. He does not understand technology and industry, Smith. Well, well can I interrupt you just because I want to get to Colbert first, and then we can move on to Smith. I just want to keep with the, the chronology. Um, okay. Is there anything that really stands out with chapters? Because you talk about the Christian um, theological kind of um, uh, appropriation of sort of economic language when talking about salvation, of you know, about the soul salvation, and then you talk about the medieval period as well. Is there anything there that we could just gloss quite quickly yeah, before I'm, moving into early modern Europe? I think it's, you know, Hirschman talked about the, um, sorry, I was going to say the sorrow and the pity, wrong reference, the passions and the interests, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, being this kind of invention of the 18th, late 17th and 18th centuries, I think the Christian thinkers saw it first. I think they saw that desire and passion were real problems and that they were real economic problems and they had to be focused completely on salvation. I think this was absolutely brilliant on their part. Um, very absolutist and pretty creepy and not at all conducive to capitalism. And and I think that they're really essential in market thought. And by the way, um, it's very easy to sort of talk about the idea of, I mean, lots of them say, look, nature also is a creation of God and it too collapses and falls apart. So let's not have a nature cult either. I, and there's a lot of reaction to Cicero. By the way, these thinkers, Ambrose, um, uh, Augustine, they're all people who grew up in a Ciceronian realm to the point of Augustine being a Ciceronian, struggling with Cicero, trying to react against Cicero, writing books you know, on, on the duties of the clergy is, is a take on Cicero's on duties by Ambrose struggling with his market thought and trying to turn it around into a moral market idea of salvation. Why is that subversive? Well, guess what? The Wall Street Journal freaked out and said that basically my reading of Christianity was garbage. Well, let's just be honest. My reading ain't that original. It comes from people like Peter Brown, others, and they've done a lot of work to show that asceticism was the main idea in Christianity for several centuries. But boy, you tell that to a Southern American hardcore conservative, and they're going to say, that's not Christianity. Christianity's capitalism. And you're just like, wow, you are a creepy product of history. Um, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I, that's what I think. So um, uh, it's fascinating. That's all. It's really, really fascinating and subversive to see the origins. And that's why origin stories are really interesting. And perhaps that's why one has never been done a free market thought in this way. <laughs> well, can we move on to the discussion of sort of free markets in early modern Europe? Uh, again, this book covers so much, it's very difficult to compact it all into a, what's supposed to be an hour long interview, might go, might go about, uh, over that. But maybe it would make most sense just to 
uh, focus in on Colbert and we can dip into other stuff as you see fit. But um, Colbert plays a very important role in your story. Uh, could you introduce very briefly him to our readers and tell them a little, our listeners, sorry, tell them a little bit about uh, yeah, Colbert's role. Who is he? Why is he so important? Well, so Colbert, I mean, within economic thought, is seen as the antithesis of Smith. Smith didn't see him that way. He's the only economic sort of figure that comes up in Smith's work. At one point, he criticizes his mercantile government, i.e. a government focused on industry um, and, and his regulations. At another point, he says, this guy is a really good uh, minister because he has this great ministry that focuses so much on information. And that's one of the ways I'd gotten the idea for the information master is actually Emma Rothschild saying, look at what he says about Colbert and information. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. But Colbert is often seen as the father of mercantilism. That was a product of the 1930s, by the way. Um, mercantilism being this idea of a state-run economy based on the hoarding of wealth and bullion. And this is partially true. So when I started this project, Colbert is not an economic theorist. He's a, he's a governor. He actually governs him. And Smith never even ran a business. Smith describes a pin factory which is hardly as complex as the factories of the Middle Ages, like the Arsenale in, in Italy. So Smith doesn't really always know about stuff. Colbert seemed like a, a more credible witness in some ways about economic thought. But he wasn't a philosopher by any means. So, But he did write this history of finance in France, which never published. And I was like, look, if Colbert really is the father of mercantilism and the antithesis of free market thought, let me go through everything he's ever written yet again, because I've read him so many times, and let me see what he says. Well, he only talks about bullionism something like a few times. He talks just as much about the idea, and I have the quotes in my book, and you know, I know people, anyway, I know there are errors in my book, but these quotes are, you know, they're really startling where he says, look, the ideal that you want is liberty of commerce, but liberty of commerce needs to work more or less with some kind of symmetrical competition. And he says over and over again, that we can't compete with the Dutch on these conditions. They're, they're, um, their merchants are too knowledgeable. They're set up, they're too far ahead of us. And very importantly, their their treaties are always disfavorable to us because our treaty writers don't understand commerce and the laws of trade. He said, we need to get to a liberty of commerce with England and Holland, but before that, we need to more or less build ourselves up so that we can compete. I mean, I was like, wow, this is really quite something. Liberty of commerce, once competition can happen in a fair way. I was like, okay, symmetrical competition. I'm like, this is modern market economic building. I'm like, this is actually not at all what people have said about Colbert. <laughs> this is really interesting. And in fact, Colbert turns out to have this remarkable modern vision of economics where he looks to build up industries. He looks to build up roads and communications. He looks to build up standards, currency, weights and measures. Um, he looks to build up navies, but he also looks to educate a merchant class to create mercantile laws, uh, and then to create a diplomatic core that can create this big treaty with England. That's one of his huge life works. And boy, that's not a small project. His family's involved with it. It's a huge deal. So I was like, whoa, hold on here. 
Colbert seems to be the really nuanced market thinker in this whole story. What Colbert describes is actually a lot more looks like really what we do to create markets and wealth. And not only that, um, his model is being taken from the English. He's saying the English did all this stuff right before I got into office, you know, with the navigation laws in, 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 in 1651. And so he's building off the English and the Dutch saying they don't play fair. Their governments are involved. So we're going to do that too. They've already done their market building. We need to do it. His model will be followed by the Germans, the Americans, later the Japanese, and I would argue the Chinese. So in the end, why are we looking at Smith to understand how markets work when I would actually contend Smith doesn't really make a lot of sense? When Colbert jokingly seems to me to give the clearest vision of how to create a functioning market system. It's not perfect. It's from the 17th century. He's a repressive <laughs> absolutist. Um, but I was stunned at his, by the way, he also believes in publicity and creating confidence and creating a knowledge store for industry and business. And he succeeds. People in Britain end up believing that France is more advanced than Britain. And this leads them to create tariffs against France. And Malachi mm -hmm. Postlewaite is just one peeps, Postlewaite, all these people, they talk about Colbert, they see what he did, and they, they're like, we need to do this too. Um, so I was like, the story's been completely inverted here. Not only that, there's another origin story of free market thought that it comes out of the reaction to Colbert at the beginning of the 18th century. And there's this book by Lionel Rothkrug, which has just been seen as the opposition to Louis XIV. And lots of economic historians are like, look, this is the moment that they turn on the Colbertist system. And I was just like, ooh, no, 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 no. Because who are the people doing all the reforms, it's all of Colbert's family who are doing the very reforms that economic historians have been said that are anti-Colbertist. They're the ones actually calling for free markets. They, they are in some cases calling for agrarianism, but other cases calling for more industry. But it's very, very interesting that the free market reformers coming at around 1709 or seven, the 1690s to the early 1700s are all members of Colbert's family, many of them personally trained by him. And I explain this in the book. I actually think that's the most important chapter because in the few origin stories that we have of where the physiocrats come from, the, the thought of Fenelon, for example, they have missed the fact that this was a complete production of the Colbert lobby, family, and interest group, and even of their ideology. And I'm like, wow, that is a big thing to miss. And for me, that's like historically the kind of huge smoking gun, the huge pressure point that has been missed. Again, I've tried to cover a lot of material. The material that I have deep expertise in is that. And finding that to me and moving it in both directions, backwards and forwards into the physiocrats and Smith, I thought was very hard, but I thought it was necessary. No matter how hard and almost impossible it is to do when you're not expert in everything. And I tried to be, by the way, I, I spent years <laughs> training myself in medieval and classical thought. And I tried to do my own graduate fields in these fields so that I'd be able to write about them. And I refer to primary sources. There are errors in my footnotes, which all had to be herded to the end of each paragraph. Then we cut and pasted and, and there's some chaos in there, but I did the work. <laughs> I did it really, really sincerely. I 
it nearly killed me. I mean, literally, I was up all night for two years working on this thing during COVID, trying to finish the work of eight years. And so after the work of six years and trying to finish it. So this is a huge project. But if you look, for example, at that, the chapter, not on Colbert, but on what happens after Colbert and the birth of, of laissez-faire thought, you'll see the Colbert family completely involved in its production. Why would that be? And yeah. because they're Mark Colbert is a market thinker. I just, and that's I, what they've trained in. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting that he he must be very threatening to a free market a free market absolutist position because he is well, I mean, you know, I sort of when I was reading it, he, he does sound a little bit like a like an old-fashioned great man. Uh, figure in history in that he seems to be able to you push back into this in a second but he seems to be able to orchestrate all of this stuff he is able to transform the french economy such that um, it's interesting that he's able to do that i know but then then he's the sort of antithesis of all of the hayekian or sowellian criticism of centralized planning because he's doing it and it's succeeding so there's a real um he is an extremely powerful counterexample to mid 20th century absolutist free market position but push back against the great man stuff if you like well no 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 i mean colbert's a bad bad dude i mean this is a guy who is killing print i mean this is the guy Mm -hmm. that says we all these pamphlets that we had before and all these scholars going around saying what they thought by the way there's this huge absurd fantasy of the um republic of letters being this kind of la la land of people dancing in the fields with flowers exchanging works freely colbert gets in really early and says this is ridiculous i'm going to control this that's what the information master is about and he starts cracking heads and sending people to the galleys and what france paris has something like more than 300 printers when colbert takes power there are 37 or 36 or 33 i don't remember the exact number by the time he represses all of them i mean he's a scary creepy dude but he is not a totalitarian that concept does not exist yet he is an absolutist and there are people who have said that absolutism didn't didn't exist. Well, he hoped that it would. Um, but then again, Colbert's heirs talk about a time where there are more freedoms. And Colbert, you know, what Colbert, no, Colbert was a man of his time. Was he great? I don't think he was a very good person. Um, was he visionary economically? Absolutely. There's another point that, that uh, the Wall Street Journal, um, I note that Colbert's policies were moderately successful they were not huge successes but they laid the basis for 18th and even 19th century industrial growth and the wall street journal is like moderate success i don't want moderate success i want free markets and i'm just like no we've been telling this story of britain of of holland and britain being the great successes by the way i would see holland as a failure it never industrializes it it has all this wealth and fails to industrialize um, it has 200 years of success and then becomes a minor power when it had all the wealth and potential to be Britain. We forget that they were both really small countries. And it's only a small part of Britain that's actually creating the, the um, first industrial revolution. Yeah. I would see France as the actual real success. It is held down by a horrific political system, by a even more repressive landed elite than Britain has. And let me tell you, and you really think 18th century was a liberal paradise in Britain and Smith was hopping around with personal freedoms? No, the guy was scared to even say he was an atheist, let alone talk about his personal situation, which nobody mentions. Smith lives with his mom, 
Nobody ever mentions that. And, you know, I, I don't I don't like talking about, I don't think these things are absolutely necessary, but the sacralization of Smith in, in the 18th century as some paradise is absolutely absurd or absurd. Um, is there anything else, sorry, I'm very conscious of the time, is there anything yeah, else that we could, um, just in terms of, you know, there's so much we could be talking for absolutely, you know, hours on end. Um, is there anything else that's sort of absolutely salient about Colbert or about the early modern European period in terms of, free market thought we have to to gloss it if that's okay sure but i mean from i would even start with the franciscans to sarah antonio sarah and 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 uh galliani this idea that smith is somehow oh thank goodness he sees that commerce is important i i'm just like that's not a really big deal read mon chrétien read uh 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 read sarah they have complex ideas about how knowledge economies urban knowledge economies you create industry and create huge amounts of plus value wealth in a way that agriculture never can and that in fact you don't even need agriculture for this smith believes that commerce and manufacturers are directly related to what agriculture produces 100 more than 100 years before this guy people are like nonsense this is how industry and knowledge culture work and they're explaining this and they're also talking about market mechanisms. So if you want to read about how market mechanisms work, these guys are much more brilliant, except they do not believe that it can happen as general equilibrium. They believe that when you're getting into something as complex as industry, and then having to have a huge basis of, let's say, education and and, and all these other things, you're going to need a, a strong presence of the state. And by the way, it's also Jacques Necker who comes in to repeat these old arguments, the Sarah arguments, the Colbert arguments, and then basically Galliani's arguments to say, look, he said, free markets are great. They're ideal until they stop working. And then you need the guardrail of the state. And he talks about the idea that you can't have, a Galliani says, you can't have an economy based on harvests because you're going to have a bad harvest. You need it based on industry. And, and it's absurd that we're going to throw ourselves in the hands of a nature god. I mean, he's laughing at, at, at the physiocrats about this. And I mean, everything we know about economics has proved them right. We should be reading them. And we're not. I mean, the first English edition of Antonio Serra is by Sophus Reinhardt. And like, that's great, but it's also, as I think Sophus and I would both agree, kind of terrifying that we're sitting around reading a thinker who doesn't understand the basics of wealth creation and not even translating the guy who actually gets it right uh, well over a hundred years beforehand. Byron, that's a nice uh, controversial lead in to your account of Smith. Um, can you uh, yeah, give us a summary of um, Smith's position uh, within this story, um, and then if you'd like to, if you'd like to respond to some of the uh, criticisms that have been made of it, public public debate over over your account. Um, because I have to admit, when I when I was reading it, this so for example, the stuff on uh, slavery. If you just uh, so you, yeah. you you can expand the position. I did have an, an instinctive response that um, I felt that that position was mis misjudged or misguided. Um, yeah. But we had before we started, we had a little chat about it, and um, yeah, please. Um, so I'm moving very breathlessly, and in the end, I that chapter was edited to move quickly. Um, I, by the way, I have a whole um, scaffolding 
around the slavery argument, which tried to connect it to his ideas on market thought. And I ended up dumping that. I shouldn't have had, maybe I shouldn't have had the statement in there, or I should have said, one can easily hypothesize that I believe Smith might have been very much for slavery. I believe that he actually was. Because every time he says he's against slavery, he says, however, it's perpetual and you can't get rid of it. Within the context of his patrons, who are people benefiting from slavery and the economy of Glasgow and even Edinburgh, um, the idea of coming out and being an abolitionist would get you in a lot of trouble. Smith was terrified of getting into trouble. He gets with, and fights with Hume. Hume speaks the truth, can't get a job. Smith's like, I don't want to be involved with talking about atheism or something really tough like abolition. Abolition is happening all around Smith. He never mentions it in any revisions or anything. He says it's perpetual. We can't get rid of it. I can think I, that's an extreme statement, actually. Yeah. So I can just interrupt. It's um, ironic then. I just, I've read um, David Richardson's book, Principles and Agents, about the 18th century British slave trade and then the abolitionist movement in the late 18th and early into the early 19th centuries. It's ironic then that Smith's argument about the economic inefficiency of slavery compared to free labor is does become a central plank of the abolitionist movement, more so at the beginning and sort of as it moves into parliament, away from the popular movement, it moves into parliament, it sort of becomes a, a key idea there. But um, <laughs> that's sometime afterwards, I suppose. And it sort of not, doesn't sound like that there's, was expected by Smith. Well, there's was... also an, an argument in parliament in 1792, where one of Smith's friends, and I don't have the references here, starts talking about the man of the system. You don't want to change legislation quickly. This is an argument against the abolitionists because this is the pride of the legislator over society and commerce. So Smith's arguments about the man of the system and the dangers of legislation are used in 1792. And, and a Scottish scholar whose name is escaping me now has written about this. And I actually took it out of my response um, uh, defending uh, my reading of Smith. Um, because it was just too much to put in there. I had a word limit, but shows how Smith could act, was actually used to attack Wilberforce, all right? So look, I shouldn't have probably said that. I was in my own world. And frankly, I see Smith as a neo as a later physiocrat. And I also see him as, as an author who rails about, um, he rails, look, he gets the basic of economics wrong. His fundamental idea of wealth creation is that it comes from agriculture and that and that commerce has to then work with what agriculture produces. This is perhaps not exactly sterility, but it sounds a lot like the sterility argument to me. And I'm not clear about that in the book, but it doesn't take away from my general argument. I should have explained it all better. And I did in the initial version. And as I sort of created a smoother narrative, a lot of this stuff dropped off. And a lot of it seems self-evident to me because I live in a world where I don't really believe what Smith says. And I guess I was not thinking about all the people that do. I find it almost impossible to take Smith seriously in what he says. Think about his complaints about the legislators, right? There's this amazing article that I have here by Alexandra Opria, Adam Smith on political judgment, revisiting the political theory of the wealth of nations, where she talks about the fact that he says over and over again that, you know, you're going to have this landed aristocracy as the people making the main decisions, the people the most invested and the people who he in other parts of the book says have the most capacity to be moral. And then he talks about the need for common people to take part in decision-making. Oh, let's see what he says about common people in decision-making 
Um, it's going to be through violence and uprising and through, um, there's another word here, I can't see the smint, the, 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 the print is small, uh, outrage, violence, insurrection, and rebellion. Really, is that the only way that the people can make themselves heard? He's read Rousseau. I mean, I just find Smith over and over again to contradict himself, to hedge. So I don't trust Smith. Therefore, when I go in and see Smith talking about, for example, slavery, I don't take him that seriously. When I see Smith saying, physiocracy is the greatest system that's ever been created and the greatest book that's ever been written is the, the table of um, Kinney, but I disagree with their use of the term sterile, because I have this small idea that actually merchants can add to wealth. Well, the physiocrats almost say that. They say that you need merchants to sort of create this system for agriculture. I don't believe what Smith says is that different, and I'm happy to argue that one out. Um, and I think that given the giant context of people talking about the need to move to industry. And then that argument really begins in force around 1615. <laughs> I mean, like almost 200 years beforehand or 170 years beforehand or 160 years. I don't think it's that visionary of Smith to claim this. And I think it is a kind of small, you know, incidental movement of originality on the physiocratic argument. Um, and therefore, it's hard for me to take him seriously as an economic thinker. As a moral thinker, he's much more interesting. Um, and that would, I guess, be a good argument against my claims about slavery. But then Smith was thinking about his position and his books were successful because of these oligarchs at the time who were running parliament. So I think that Smith is actually the, the example of a professor who is close to power and who's struggling with his own beliefs and his own fears of being outed as in numerous ways of, you know, what his beliefs are and his own struggle to overcome his own self-interest as opposed to his beliefs in, in, in morality in a benevolent society. Um, I don't know if that made sense. Um, but I don't believe that he is a credible thinker for capitalism outside of his moral ideas of benevolence goodness and having the impartial spectator, which is not necessarily his idea, is a really important idea that for a society to work, you're going to have to have these moral people that will get above greed. I believe he says that very in a very roundabout way. And that I think is really important from Smith. That's not what people have taken because Smith contradicts himself and is so hard to get to the bottom of that it's easier to take out these kind of neoliberal sounding quotes. I don't know if, if people are absolutely free to disagree with me, and I know I'm not clear enough when I say this in the book, um, but I do think the general argument's there. I mean, I think that becomes clear from what I'm saying. Um, should I have taken out the slavery part? Yeah, I definitely now think I should have just dropped it. It's another argument. At the same time, here we are arguing about it, and I think it's important. So Perhaps an oversight by me of leaving something in there without its full scaffolding, I actually went into why his criticism or his thoughts about slavery and absolute monarchy actually sound a lot like a defense of slavery rather than a critique of absolutism. That's what I had. It was tangential. It didn't add to free market thought. I dropped it and left the statement about slavery. I've been thinking about why I left it in there. 
out of some, I don't know, just, I don't know. I, I left it. I, I consciously left it in because I, I believed it. I think it's interesting that perhaps with um, Smith, that because he is a hero to a lot of people who are writing about him, that you are going to have the more sympathetic interpretations be the most prominent ones. I just think about my own, you know, I'm not important in this conversation, but um, when I read those passages about slavery, I think of him as the dispassionate, almost detached scientist of human nature. When he's comparing slavery in the English Republic, you know, public compared to um, the French absolutist state, he's comparing and contrasting. Uh, so, you know, some ironic or unintended consequence that a slave, an enslaved person, might have a better time of it in France yeah. rather than in in the French colonies, rather than the English colonies. And I, there's a detachment there that seems kind of inhuman to us now. But I've always seen that as him sort of being a, just a very otherworldly social scientist in his chair in his academic, you know, in his university, as opposed to he's not an abolitionist. He's not a campaigning figure in that sense. But that kind of your interpretation of it sounds, yeah, there's a, there's a, an element to his sort of being part of the system that mm. is not often talked about, especially in terms of that issue. But I, I think, um, we, you know, I wanted to talk uh, talk to you about that, given that it's got a bit of, uh, it's been a bit of discussion about it um, in the press and so on. Can we go back to, or just sort of- Can I just make one point? Of My course. biggest error was I sort of, I, I talked about Smith in, without enough political and real care. So I made some language misjudgments and things like that. It was interesting because I do not think Smith is that, I do not, I'm not that, I'm not unsympathetic to Smith, but I just don't admire him very much. And so it was a real error on my part because I somehow didn't imagine that people really do admire Smith very much. And I didn't think it would be, it was completely naive and completely kind of foolish on my part not to really go back perhaps expand the smith chapter in fact there was a moment where my editors were like do you want to expand it i was like no i don't really think smith i think that we'll go into the weeds if we do that i think maybe i was wrong i think i should have expanded the chapter and i should have but then i would have had to go go into all these arguments about why i don't think smith is credible and i think that would have been a harder thing to do but this this is a conversation that can continue but I do think that Smith is not disinterested. I think Smith is very much interested. There's one last note. There's this interesting thing where Smith's supposed to be writing another book on jurisprudence, and he says he's writing it. He's not. He's working as a tax collector. Um, Smith is not a moral paragon. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, and, he, and he's why is he working as a tax collector? He's making something like 75 to 100 grand a year, whatever. That's actually a lot of money in that context in, in modern terms. Yeah. Um, and that's because of these oligarchs by the way what do you think those taxes are being collected on slavery mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean sorry i just i'm i'm just like so i see smith in these terms and i guess it's really an argument for another book but i put it in there and i think it's important yeah um so can we go back to uh, smith's position in the story of uh free market thing uh thinking um what what are you saying that's that goes against the absolutist 20th century position. What's the, if we could just gloss it in like big. Yeah, the most important thing that I'm contrast. saying is that I, I don't see Smith as, as a, as, as a, someone who is supporting the idea of greed. So I'm actually defending Smith in this case. Um, I don't see 
there are all these interpretations of the free of the, the invisible hand. I see the invisible hand, according to him, as being the benevolent society. And rather than being the state, um, for example, uh, um, the Dutch who, or sorry, the, the French who, physiocrats who want the state to move in to favor um, uh, um, agriculture, he believes that agriculture will do it on its own. Uh, that's actually even more idealistic, but that society is the one that's going to, he's very clear, help merchants make national investments, which he believes are the right kinds of investments. He's very clear. It's best when your merchant lives in his country and invests his money back in his country. I mean, this is an economic nationalist argument there. Um, um, and he says that that's the invisible hand will help the merchant do that. What's the invisible hand? I believe that it is this society of impartial spectators who are very clearly to me a stoic elite. Now that also fits into Smith's interests. He is the teacher, the tutor to this elite's children. He is a professor and he is an author of moral philosophy. So if it's, you're going to have a good society that will allow commercial society, not capitalism, he never says capitalism, commercial society to work, you're going to need this group of good people to be impartial spectators, to have that virtue and compassion and sympathy to make the system work. And that is not an uncommon reading of Smith. I believe it's an important one. So that's where I come on and actually say, Smith has some very positive ideas that we could learn from today. And using him as a Hayekian anti-government or a even more modern greed is good guy is absolutely wrong and anachronistic. Okay. Um, <laughs> By the way, you made me show that actually, okay, there are parts of Smith that I like and I'm sympathetic to. Um, and they well, sound a little bit reactionary too. <laughs> well, there's a contrast here where you're talking about the sort of the Ciceronian um, landed, what, you know, the landed elite uh, being sort of the focus of Smith's position, which goes against the <coughs> oh, excuse me. The sort of the celebration of the democratize, you know, the democratization of virtue in Smith. That if the, the butcher and the baker and so on are able to develop a set of virtues, prudence, punctuality, politeness, and so on, which allows them to live a good life, sure. which isn't available to you in a Ciceronian republic, because the vast majority of people are not involved in decision making and they can exhibit civic virtue because they don't have that they don't have that position within within a society whereas in commercial society you are those things are valorized newly valorized in smith um i, I as you were talking it just it just sort of struck me the uh that kind of he is always read as a, a celebrant of the world that we live in now you know that he is the the yeah um, the interests of the, the rent class um, is strictly and inseparably connected with the general interest of society. He goes on to say that poorer people also have general interest in society, but he's very clear that they will not be able to be as moral. Therefore, they're going to have to have these other, they can't be the impartial spectators. They might be able to get closer. And he talks about that, the, the more miserable people might be able to get closer to it. But I do think he has a hierarchy of morality. Um, and by the way, if I, I would also argue that if you're really 
interested in the the well-being. Remember, Smith's idea of the well-being of the common man is enough to eat and warm clothing. He's not talking about democracy. He's not talking about the, the democratization of wealth. He's talking about the spreading of opulence as having the absolute poor. By the way, he laughs about um about the reproductive capacities of poor Highland women, as I know. And maybe that got taken out of the book, not that he would know much about these questions, right, practically. Um, but he mocks the poor too. I mean, I, I don't know. Smith goes back and forth. I I I don't I would say you have all these thinkers right now talking about democracy. I mean, you have Machiavellian democracy and ideas in um, Rousseau, which are far more radical and far more influential than Smith, and will have far more influence in creating modern democracy, and also modern communism as well, um, than Smith. So it's not like Smith's the only guy out there with an idea of how to make people richer and happier and better off. Um, and it's also not like the industrial thinkers are saying, hey, this is a great way to keep people down. No, the industrial thinkers are also like, this is a way to create wealth. So um, I think we're also getting back to a problem that I see in Smith over and over again, that he seems to contradict himself. He seems to hedge and he seems to offer himself to many different um, interpretations. I would argue that the ultimate interpretation still is, is pro-agrarian and somewhat hierarchical. He hedges on that too. But I see him as a hedger. Um, Machiavelli was a hedger for a while, but then he really does say what he means. But I do think you should read Smith in that way of someone living in a not completely free setting, where if he says something that is too extreme or that people disagree with, he can lose his job like Hume. This is not, I don't know, this is not 1975 in Chicago, <laughs> you know, it's just not. So um, I think we need to begin to wrap up. We could possibly do a part two another day, just because okay. this, uh, you know, this book is so wide ranging. We've barely scratched the surface of it, I feel. Um, I want to do one provocation, one provocational question to you. The provocation is, can we just get rid of the word free? With the story that you're telling... Absolutely. Free market sort of becomes a dominating idea, uh, middle 20th century, it's an absolutist, a religious tenet sort of thing, um, and it's simplistic and unhelpful. The thinkers you're looking at always sort of roll for government. Um, yeah, why do we, can we just move away from free market? It, it doesn't serve us uh, a purpose. Well, part after the book came out, I was like, this is actually just a history of market thought. It's not a history specifically of free market thought. It's a history of market thought, and I'm trying to compare the two. Um, but at the same time, I think it's useful. I think that it's useful because of the claims made between political freedom and wealth creation, um, because of the role that free market thought plays, and because of its, its I mean, it's especially in Munn and Misselden, who are like my favorites, because they're the first people to write free market in the title of their book. And they're like, but, and they're like, the market, this exchange is what's going to propel this country forward and give it wealth, but the state's going to have to take a real role in this. And they talk about the individual versus the state and the need for sort of both. Um, I think they're really smart. I think whether they're moral or not, again, you know, with the East India Company, that's another question. But are they smart? Sure. These people are inventing not only the modern state, but modern capitalism. So Misseldon and Munn, as precursors to Colbert, 
I sort of go back to them over and over again because I was I've been stunned how historians haven't known what to call them. Partial mercantilists. I'm like, these guys are free market thinkers according to themselves. That's what they say in the titles of their books. So, or in the writings of their pages. Therefore, we should take very seriously what they say about themselves. And that is one of my arguments. That's a historicist argument. Um, but yes, this book is more wide. And part of me regrets that we're getting bogged down in these arguments and people aren't looking at my how much time I spent trying to build this history of, of market thought. <laughs> but again, so I don't know. I don't even know. It gets, it's, it's upsetting to be attacked. Some of the attacks are kind of fair, like it's not clear enough. There are some errors here and there, um, but the general attacks aren't fair and misleading. They're they're very revealing, um, and it's good we're sitting here talking. So I guess, even though I don't want to be attacked, I guess I provoked the attacks, clearly, <laughs> whether subconsciously or not is another question, and it's causing us to talk about something that I think we really, really do need to talk about. I think this is like a really important topic, historically and in a presentist sense. Although I'd rather talk about the historical stuff. I think you're, people are doing, you know, an academic is doing well if people are talking about their book. <laughs> Many books will, uh, you know, get published and fall ignored <laughs> into the bin. Uh, whereas, you know, to provoke, I, I found it very, yeah, I found it a very thought provoking book. I found myself disagreeing with it at, at first and then coming back to it and, and you know, I'm thinking again, yes, it's, I really recommend it to our listeners. It's a, it's a, yeah, extremely ambitious and extremely thought-provoking work. And Professor Jacob Salt, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, it's been fantastic. Thanks. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you. Yes.